Today we want to finalize a series of messages we started during the Christmas season that we entitled, Do You Know Who or What You Got for Christmas? And um, this is the final message in that series. I'm sure that some of you who are of age uh, remember Alec Haley. He wrote a novel entitled Roots. Remember that? This novel traced his lineage back to his African origins. The novel became a bestseller and was made into a highly successful TV miniseries in 1997. It was said that this particular miniseries was watched more than uh, anyone, uh, any other series up to that point. Not too long after that, of course, a sequel was made. In fact, two sequels were made. The final one was one called The Gift, Roots The Gift. I think and it was released during Christmas time. And there was a vivid picture in there where he was holding up the baby. It was quite a striking thing. But it was called Roots. Now, Kunta Kinta, you remember that name? That became a household word. Everybody. And by the way, the, the guy who acted, uh, Lavon Burton, I think his name was, that was his introduction uh, to, uh, to the movies. From that time on, he became well-known. It's Star Trek, you know. I like Star Trek. But it caused a roots rage, this miniseries. Everybody began tracing their genealogy, their lineage, trying to find out their roots, where they came from. Everybody is looking for some famous person, you know. And if they found someone who's connected to them, somehow, boy, they publicized it. But I actually read with some people who found out that they had some really bad people in their lineage. So they stopped looking. <laughs> one of the most uh, uh, outstanding one was Al Sharpton, you know him? He is a black activist in the United States. And he was in, I think he's what, he's, he's in the, uh, he had a person he opposed all the time who he regarded as a racist who was in the Senate. I forgot his name. And for, well, you know, I forget a lot of things these days. But he started to trace his lineage back. And this guy was a white person. Al was a black person. The guy that he opposed to call a racist was a white person. And he traced his lineage back. And guess what? <laughs> they were related. <laughs> but Al did a good thing. He actually ran out into the grave and saw his ancestors. And he says, well, that's the way it is. Amazing. But you know, sometimes we run away from our ancestors. That's why I agree with Thomas when he says this, I quote, I think it's on the screen. The man who has not anything to boast of but his illustrious ancestors is like a potato. The only good belonging to him is underground. <laughs> Oliver Holmes said it in this fashion. An omnibus in which all our ancestors ride. This is how he describes ancestry now. It's an omnibus in which all our ancestors ride. And every now and then, one of them puts his head out and embarrasses us. Now, that's looking at it from a human point of view, from a human perspective. And if we looked at our ancestors like that, Jesus could identify with this statement about every now and then somebody poking the head out and embarrassing us. Because when you look at Jesus' ancestry, from a human perspective, you've got all kind of bad people in there. A lot of people you wouldn't want to associate with or know that they're part of your family. But there is another side of looking back at our ancestors that I like because it offers some good advice. And it's advice that I always pass on to my children because they like to blame me for all of their bad habits. And all of their pain, whenever they have an ache, they say that's daddy's fault. Never blame Nancy's for anything. 
but they blame me for all of the bad things. You know, there's a branch of psychology that does that. It doesn't blame the person for anything. Is your mama, is your grandmama, or is your great-granddaddy who's the cause of it? It's not you. You blame the ancestors for it. But here's a quote I like. You cannot change your ancestors, but you certainly can do something about your descendants. And we'll see that in this message today. But now when we look at the actual facts, after the fact, and something that is clearly demonstrated in Scripture, exactly the opposite is true when we think of Jesus Christ. In other words, looking back to somebody in our lineage to blame for our faults. That's not true when it comes to Jesus Christ. If it's one area in which God definitely and specifically underlines the truth that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, it's in the area of Jesus' ancestors, the roots of Jesus. To be absolutely blunt, but to be true to scripture and history, Jesus' roots contain some very unsavory characters to say the least. As I was going through this message, I was, going to say, I was saying to Nancy, Jesus has some rotten roots. Nancy said, you can't say that. So don't tell her I said that. <laughs> but he has some terrible roots, and some of them are best underground. Don't dig them up. Leave them there. His ancestry line is one omnibus in which more than one of his ancestors sticks his head out the window and embarrasses the savior of the world. Beginning almost, in fact, from the very first promise of the seed of the woman that we looked at last time in Genesis 3.15, Jesus' family tree is anything but an unblemished line of holy or royal blue bloods. Instead, his family tree includes liars, deceivers, prostitutes, adulterers, murderers, idolaters, and even what we so callously call illegitimate children. Jesus' family tree includes all of these kind of unsavory characters. God seemed to have deliberately chosen the worst to include in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. This is the line out through which the Savior of the world was to come. And he chose, it seems, the debased of mankind for that to happen. And so the question I would like to ask this morning is, why would God do such a thing? Why would he choose the worst of humanity as the roots from which the best of humanity would come? Now we're talking about what you got for Christmas. You got the best of humanity. But we're going to show you that God did something very strange. He produced it from the worst of humanity. Let me ask you a question. Suppose you were given the privilege and opportunity of choosing your own ancestors. Who would you choose? Blue bloods, right? Royalty. If you had that same opportunity to choose the ancestors of Jesus Christ, what would you do? You'd do the same thing. You'd look for the best, the purest you could find amongst human beings to include him as a part of the line of Jesus Christ. But now God didn't do this. Jesus' Christmas roots were quite different from who we would choose to be a part of that, those roots. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. To be frank, I feel a little uneasy sitting down here, but uh, I can't shout the way I like to joy when I'm sitting here. Matthew chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 16. Look at the screen as well. Now, take a look at it. I don't intend for you to read this on the screen. I want, simply want to show you why people don't read it. 
You see all those begats? Now, if you go to the book of Genesis, you get something else. He died, he died, he died. Here, when you come into Matthew, you get, he begat, he begat, he begat. You get all these begats and all these he dieds. Having to do with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Nobody reads them. Now, Matthew traces Jesus' roots from Abraham. He was the first Jew to Jesus, who I like to call the complete Jew. Many refer to Matthew as the Jewish gospel because the Jewish because Matthew describes Jesus as the promised Messiah, written especially to the Jewish nation. And it records the genealogy of Joseph, showing that Jesus was the legal kingly heir to the throne of David, coming through the line of Solomon. Now we talked about the line of Nathan last time in order to bypass that curse. You remember that? No, you just like me, you forgot the sermon already. I don't mean I forget the sermon, I mean I forget things, right? But he traces his line through Solomon. That's why in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 32, it says, The Lord shall give unto him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David. Jesus inherited the legal line through Joseph, who was entitled to the throne. We talked about how Mary came into the picture last time in a miraculous way, why there had to be a virgin birth. So we won't go through that again this morning. Now, continue to look at Matthew chapter 1. He included five women in his genealogy. That's not normal in genealogies from the Jewish people. They didn't include women because you didn't have any descendants coming through women. And remember how we saw how God turned that around by changing the law in the Old Testament to make it possible for the line to come through women? Now we see it in the book of Matthew. And he includes five women in his genealogy. This is very notable because it was not customary for Jews to do this. But even more remarkable is the fact that Matthew included some women who, to say the least, were unsavory characters. The five women included this genealogy was Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Outstanding in genealogies. Tamar, her story is given in Genesis 38. She was a daughter-in-law of Judah. She was a childless widow, if you remember. And she was given to her brother-in-law after her husband's death. Why? Because she wanted to carry the lineage on. Didn't have any children. So the law back then is the brother, if unmarried, would become the husband. So the name could go on, as we say. But this husband didn't want to do his husbandry duties. You all know the story of that, way. Right? I wouldn't go into that story. So God killed him. That's right. God killed him because he didn't want to do what a husband is supposed to do to have children. I'm trying to be very sensitive, you know. So what did Tamar do? Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute. And she seduced Judah, her father-in-law. And they said it was quite easy to seduce. He gave some, some items to keep to assure what was going on here. She forced him to do this. So when the time came, he couldn't back out and say, this is not my child. Even staff, his signet, and a piece of cord. And this unholy union between Judah and Tamar resulted in the birth of a set of twin boys. One of them, Ferris by name, became the ancestor of David. And David was a tap root of Jesus' roots. That's the main one. And he came about as a result of an illicit affair between David and Judah. 
These were direct descendants of Jesus Christ. The whole story is told, the X-rated story is told in Genesis 36. Believe it or not, without Tamar, there would be no Christmas. Do you get that? This is the woman, disguised herself as a prostitute, had relations with the father-in-law. The offspring became a direct descendant of Jesus Christ. Without Tamar, there would be no Christmas. Then the other lady is Rahab. Story is told in Joshua 2. She was also what the Bible calls a harlot. That's a prostitute. She lived in Jericho. That was her business. She hid the spies of Joshua. And because of this, the Israelites spared her life when they conquered Jericho. Now with Rahab, Jesus' roots creep over the wall. From the nation of Jews to pagan. The root calls over the wall into pagan territory now because Rahab was a pagan. She later married Solomon. He became the, she became the mother of Boaz and eventually she became the great, great grandmother of David, a direct relative of Jesus Christ. In other words, believe it or not, without Rahab, the harlot, there would be no Christmas. But we didn't finish yet. Ruth. Ruth is also a pagan. She was a foreigner. Now the Jew married her, but she was a pagan too. She was a Gentile in the land of Moab. She turned her back against the country and her gods and followed Ruth. You remember the story, don't you, Naomi? Ruth later married who? Boaz. Who was Boaz? He was the son of the former harlot Rahab. A thousand years or so later, she too became, that's Ruth, became the direct descendant of Jesus Christ. She was the great grandmother of David, the top root of Jesus' roots. Believe it or not, without Ruth, there would be no Christmas. But now, let's go to Bathsheba. Couldn't find a picture of her, so I had to go to Hollywood for this one. <laughs> Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He was a soldier in the army of King David. You know the story, don't you? But you all read the story. We read the story, you see, and it's just a story. But it's more than that. It has to do with Christmas. She and David had a, an adulterous affair. Now, I'll tell you the rest of the story when I get to David himself. But she was an adulteress. Believe it or not, without Bathsheba, the adulteress, there would be no Christ. And if there's no Christ, there'd be no Christmas. Now, we get a little better feeling when we come to Mary. Because Mary was a virgin, a pure person. But she still was regarded as an adulteress, wasn't she? For most of her life. She had a stigma on her. Jesus confronted that even as a man. You see. But we know of course. Without Mary there would be no Christmas. So you see ladies. Women have a lot to do. With Christmas. Some like to call them the scarlet women of Christmas. Except for Mary. She just had the shadow of it. But now you say, what about the man? Well, let's do a quick overview. The microwave, right? The microwave approach. Joy, let me explain that to you. We need the meat of the word. It needs to be put in a slow cooker. What do they call it? A crock? A crock, crock pot. You need to put it in a crock pot and let it go on and on. You get all the nice juices and everything. But we ain't got time for that. So we at Calvary Bible Church use the microwave approach. <laughs> all right. So let's do the microwave approach again. I rub it in. You know how I like to rub it in, right? Abraham. We begin with Abraham. Remember him? 
He's the first major figure in Jesus' ancestry. He was called the friend of God. He's called the father of the faithful. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 16, we have the story of God's promise to him that he would give he and his wife Sarah a child, to which the world would be blessed. Referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. But you know the story. Abraham couldn't wait. So he went into one of his handmaids, as they call them, and he had a child. Now, you know, before that, Abraham lied a couple of times, right? To save his own skin. To save his own skin, calling his wife his sister. Remember the story, right? This is the people we're dealing with now who brought about Christmas. This child then was born to this rebellious and faithless relationship and was named Ishmael. We still got Ishmael with us. That's what's happening right now in Israel. Ishmael fighting Isaac because of this illicit affair. That's Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful. He was pagan too, remember, before he became a Jew. He was a Gentile before he became a Jew. You know that, don't you? These are all pictures of what Christmas is all about. Abraham is one of the beginning taproots of Jesus' roots. But let's move on from Abraham now and go to Jacob. Jacob was another primary ancestor of Jesus Christ. He's infamous for his wrestling with an angel and winning. But he's even more famous for his lying, his deceit, and his trickery in order to steal the paternal blessing from his father Isaac. You know the story, don't you? But remember when he was dying and in the process of giving his final blessing to his 12 sons, he prophesied that Messiah would be a direct descendant of Judah. You know who Judah was, right? That's the one who did that dastardly deed with Tamar. Now when you read these stories, it sounds like the bold and the beautiful But going to a little bit more extremes. Now remember this. All of these, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, all are named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They are all members of the Christmas roots. That's quite a moldy crew, isn't it? But we're not finished yet. The unholy union between Judah and Tamar, as we mentioned, resulted in the birth of a set of twin boys. Pharaohs became the ancestor of David. Now, who's David? David is the top root of Jesus' ancestors, his roots. Who is this good man? He's most famous for his relationship with Bathsheba. Hollywood says so. Now, although David was a great national hero, and he was... He certainly was no perfect specimen of godliness or moral integrity. Second Samuel 11 gives us a story of his illicit, illegitimate affair with Bathsheba, the wife of an upright and moral man named Uriah. Uriah was a soldier under his command. When David discovered Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to cover it up, as most people in this situation try to do. He tried to cover it up, how? By calling Uriah home from war. He was hoping that Uriah would go in to his wife. But this man was a moral man. He said, no, all my fellows are out there. They're not having this privilege. I'm not going to do it either. And so he didn't even go home. So David sent Uriah into battle again and told his fellows, put him in the front line, let him get it first. You know the story. And that's what happened. What did God do? God killed the first child because of that. Right? Now, the prophet Nathan, you remember the story, he went through the whole thing with the little lamb and all of that, and he pointed his finger at David and says, Thou art the man. That's the man who was included in Jesus' Christmas roots. 
Now, really, these, this, such tainted genealogy is not what we would expect of the incarnate, holy Son of God. But it seems that God is making a point because he continues to do it. David had a son called Solomon, and he took off running where his father left off. Contrary to the law of God, and in spite of his wisdom, his riches, and his power, he wantonly and brazenly sinned against God by setting up in his palace a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines, and most of them were pagans. In 1 Kings 11, where this drama is unfolded, it is said that in his old age, Solomon's wives turned away his heart after other gods, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's Solomon, one of the direct descendants of Jesus Christ. He became an idolater himself, and he led the entire nation of Israel into idolatry. Yet God chose to include him in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Now you, you, you think we finished? Finally, at least from the microwave version, Naamah, one of Solomon's pagan wives, gave birth to Rehoboam. He took over as king when Solomon died. And this is what the scripture says about the son of Solomon. He waxed even more evil than his father. He waxed even more evil than his father. He caused the entire kingdom to be divided. You remember that? And Judah was led into apostasy, into idolatry and immorality. The entire history of the kings of Judah and the kings filled with people who just sinned and sinned and sinned. And all of them were ancestors of Jesus Christ. It was a history of corruption, evil, decadence, idolatry. And for 400 years from that point on under this man, that continued. Why would God do such a thing? If I was God, I wouldn't do that. That's probably why I'm not God. So I think we can actually conclude that Jesus has a very blemished line indeed. His human roots, sorry Nancy, was rotten to the core. Rotten to the top core. So the question naturally arises, why? Why did God choose these liars, deceivers, adulterers, murderers, idolaters to be a part of the ancestry of his only perfect, holy, spotless son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What was his purpose behind it? Could such a thing possibly glorify him? Now you see, this kind of a thing, nice people don't like to hear. Nice people don't like to hear this. Because they think that Jesus only has to do with the nice people who go to church. Who get baptized. Who give their money. Who live in nice homes. But we got a different picture here. We got a different picture here. That's why Jesus says, I didn't come for the nice people. I came for the dirty ones. I didn't come for the saint. I came for the sinners. That's what he said. And he's making a point here. Now, I believe that the answer to these questions, why did God do this? Could he be glorified? I believe we can answer this in a microwave fashion with three responses. And I believe it's a very important message for us as we reflect upon this time of the year. Because we have distorted it so much. 
I don't believe that even God realizes that we are celebrating the birth of a son. The way we have distorted what is happening today. Let's look at a few of these reasons, three of them. I believe that God's purpose for the tainted genealogy, the rotten roots of his son, was first of all because he wants to graphically illustrate the facts of his deity. He wants to graphically illustrate the fact of his deity. If Jesus were not God manifested in the flesh, then he was nothing more than a product of his rotten roots. You get what I'm saying? He will be a liar, a fraud, a deceiver, and the biggest hoax that this world has ever seen. And do you know some people say that he is? He lied when he said he was a savior. He lied when he said he was the son of God. He lied when he says he was the promised one. He lied when he said that he was not the son of an adulteress. They call him a liar. People are still calling him a liar today. But look at the life of Jesus. He repeatedly exposed himself to the ready-to-condemn eyes of his enemies. And he challenged them with these words, See if you can find any wrong in me. Didn't he do that? He stood up before his enemies. See if you can prove that I have sinned, that I have done anything wrong. And he didn't do this to a bunch of church-going people. He did this to those who opposed him, to those who wanted to kill him. See, if I've done anything wrong, if I've sinned in any way, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod the Tetrarch, not even Pilate the governor could find anything. All they could say is, I find no fault in this man. Find no fault in him. And that's in spite of Jesus' tainted roots. Man, you would think with all of these ancestors that he had, boy, he's, he's, he's waiting to do something wrong. But not so. If Jesus was not divine, his ancestors would dictate his actions. But we suggest the very opposite. In Jesus Christ, through his miraculous, unique incarnation, by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, God reversed or actually nullified the natural laws of heredity. Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus was indeed in all points tempted as we are, but unlike us, he did not sin. He had no sin. And when he is compared with his ancestors, the comparison turns into a contrast. His sinless nature and behavior is just the opposite of what his ancestors did. Just the opposite. His deity is in fact all the more obvious and remarkable in light of the sinfulness and corruption of his ancestors. He did not inherit their sin or sinful disposition. disposition. He did not draw from his tainted roots. In his life. He was a sinless. Spotless son of God. He had to be. How else could he be the savior of the world? How else could he actually taste death for every man? Friends listen. Jesus was not the product of his roots. Human roots. He was not the product of his ancestors as we are. He was different. He was unique. He was and is definitely divine. How else can his perfect life be explained in light of his tainted genealogy and rotten roots? He had to be divine. The ver this very fact, I say, establishes the deity of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. In fact, he Every bit of modern knowledge concerning human heredity, like genes and DNA, 
would support and validate and substantiate this spiritual theological claim that Jesus is God. How else can we explain his perfect life as contrasted to his tainted genealogy? No connection. That's what Christmas is all about. The perfect Lamb of God was perfect even though he came from the most imperfect ancestors you want to find anywhere. But there's another reason why I believe God this, did this. I believe he did it to vividly illustrate the universality of the salvation he came to bring. The universality of the salvation he came to bring. I believe that God chose this method, this method to indicate to the world that salvation was not for the Jews only as they thought, but for the Gentiles as well, for the pagans. This is the truth, by the way, that even today the majority of Jews refuse to accept. They still believe that salvation is only, not only of the Jews, but for the Jews. By the way, a little aside here. You know this ruckus they had over the menorah? And the Christmas decorations? That was a bunch of nonsense. It really was. You look up in the Act for Holidays, it says that December the 25th is a Christmas day. It didn't say on Hanukkah. That should settle it. That's what the day is for. Christmas day. But... Why I brought this up it had to do with this in one sense. One, one of my closest pastor's friends said that there's no contradiction between the Jewish menorah and Christmas. Now I said, even he doesn't know what Christmas is or he don't know what the menorah has to do in the Jewish thingam. Christmas celebrates what? As the son of God. The Jewish people do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Can you have two more contrasts than that? One who represents that he is not the Son of God, and one who says he is, and says there's no comparison? It doesn't make sense. Here, I believe that God is saying, by bringing in the pagans, that his salvation through the Lamb of God is not only for the Jews, but for everyone. That's the message we have in the New Testament. To Jew first, yes, but then also to the Gentiles. And that's indicated, portrayed in his ancestors. By including the Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus, God the Father clearly demonstrated that he would indeed fulfill his promise to Abraham that all nations of the world would be blessed in and through his seed. Who is the seed? The seed is Jesus. And blessed they are. Because the good news of the gospel is that a Savior was born, not only for the Jews, but, before, but, bef but for all of mankind, and especially for those who would place faith in the seed, Jesus Christ. Blessed they are, because the good news of the gospel, I say, is for all people. And that's why I believe one of the most meaningful things we should do at Christmas is to proclaim the gospel to everyone, not just to have a party for the saints. You see, this magnificent transaction that resulted in a universal application of the death of Christ is all pictured and symbolized in Jesus' genealogy. It too was universal, including both Jew and Gentile. But let it be understood very clearly. This blessing only came through his death, not his birth. Jesus was born to die. The blessing was not in his birth. That was only a first step. The blessing was in his death. That's how all mankind are blessed. Because as long as he lived, even though he was the perfect God-man, he could not be our Savior. For that he had to die. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's a starting gate for the sacrifice of the death of Jesus Christ. The point is, even though his death is universal, it still only is actual to those who personally rely upon that death through faith in the Lamb of God. Yes, the provision is there for all, 
But you have to personally reach out. You have to personally reach out and place faith in the Lamb of God. He would not be a savior if he remained in the manger. He had to go to the cross of Calvary. And so Christmas really is to tell you that Jesus came to die for you. And if you have not made that a part of your Christmas celebration, you've missed it altogether. He came so that you might place faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But thirdly, Jesus' tarnished or rotten roots, I believe, are meant to portray what God desires to do in our own lives. That God can and does take a person dead in sin and trespasses and implants within him a new sinless nature is a miracle of the first kind. You hear what I say? That God would take a person dead in sin and trespasses like all of those awful ancestors he had and implant within him or her, a sinless nature is a miracle of the first kind. That's a miracle that keeps on giving and keeps on going. Day after day, year after year, Christmas after Christmas. The miracle of the new birth. Paul makes this quite clear in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. See that? A new creation. Paul believes so much in the reality of this amazing spiritual transformation that he went so far as to say that since his conversion, he knew no man after the flesh. He was so made anew. His entire outlook on life had changed. He saw everything and everyone through the eyes of the new self, the new creation. He was a new man. How did that happen? He was born anew. Spirit of God remade the human spirit. Paul says in Galatians that he was desiring that the people be what? That they might be, that Christ might be born in them afresh. That's what Christmas is all about, friends. So it could happen in your life. When you receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into your life, a Christmas experience occurs. He enters into the barn of your sinfulness. All the filth, all the dirt that your sin has caused and brought about. He enters into the manger, if you want, of that darkened cave of yourself, of your life. And he brings new life. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's exactly what happens when we conversion happens. The power of the Holy Spirit comes over you. And you are born anew into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. Notice it says the Holy One in you. The Holy Thing, King James says, in you. In other words, Jesus was born holy. He was born free from the contamination of the fall or of his fallen sinful ancestors. He was born a perfect, sinless, green shoot. Although he came from rotten human roots. God nullified and abrogated the natural laws of heredity. 
by passing the essence of what we now call the DNA and producing an absolutely perfect, sinless son, the God-man Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas. But friends, listen The wonder, the miracle goes on. Genuine regeneration changes a person. He changes them from the inside out. It turns a person from a sinner into a saint. It turns a person, a child of the devil, into the child of God. It turns an adulterer into a faithful, loving spouse. It turns a thief, whether white or blue-collar, employee or employee, into an honest person who works with his own hands to help others. It turns an alcoholic into a person filled with the Spirit. It turns a drug addict into a person committed to Christ and His Word. It turns an idolater into a worshiper of the true and living God. That's what regeneration does. And that's what Christmas symbolizes and all the rotten roots that Jesus had. When a person, I say, opens the stable of his or heart and life, no matter how much is filled with sin, no matter how much filled with immorality, with failures, with weaknesses, God the Son enters into that life and transforms it into a temple of the living God. He himself indwells us through his Holy Spirit. He is born anew in us. And even as his death saves us from the penalty of his sin, his life within us saves us from the practice of sin, from the power of sin. On a moment-by-moment basis, as Jesus is reincarnated in us on a day-by-day basis. That's the miracle of Christmas. As John says, he must increase But I must increase. That's true of you and me. When Jesus comes into our life, we gradually are doing away with our sinful life and the life of Christ begins to live. That's what Christmas is all about. And so I say to you, no matter what kind of background you have, I don't care who your grandparents were, No matter how ill repute your ancestors were, no matter how rotten your roots are, Jesus Christ in you can nullify the impact and influence of your ancestors and cause you to be unique among your ancestors. You, you can cause new roots to spring up. Remember, you may not be able to do anything about your ancestors. But you certainly can do something about your descendants. See this little baby here, William? Right here? You too? What a blessed opportunity you have. All those bad habits. I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. But that's the privilege we have of being able to create, as it were, a kind of atmosphere, lifestyle that would represent Jesus Christ that will nullify any, any negativity that came from our families, no matter what they may be. And so I encourage you, I challenge you, to begin a new strain in your family tree. Create something new in your lifeline. Let Christ be born anew in your life today. You'll thank God for it. And so will your children and your children's children. If ever there was a miracle, I say Jesus' birth as a sinless human being was it. And that's what Christmas is all about. If you lose this focus, you lose the true meaning of Christmas. If you miss this in your celebrations, you've missed it. I don't care how much time you spend with your family. I don't know, we get this idea from Christmas is for children, Christmas is for family. It's amazing how we have left God out of the picture. I say to you again, the reason for the season is not Jesus. The reason for the season is sin. If there was no sin, Jesus would not have to come. Jesus came to do away with sin in your life. That's the reason for the season. And if you don't see that in your life and in the life of your children, you've missed Christmas. No matter how much money, no matter how much presents you've given them, you've missed it if you don't deal with the sin in their lives. 
God then is performing a similar miracle today. The same God who executed the miracle of the physical incarnation of his Son is willing, able, and desirous of creating with each of us, in spite of our sinful heredity, a new sinful nature through the spiritual miracle of regeneration. He wants to reincarnate his Son in us. As Paul puts it in Galatians, he wants to form Christ anew in us. Will you let him do it in your life this Christmas? Please bow with me in a word of prayer. You might ask, how do I do this? How do I have Christ be formed in you in my life? Simply acknowledge that you are a sinner for whom Christ died and that he is the Son of God, became the God-man on that first Christmas so that he might die in your place. Acknowledge that God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he had accepted Christ's death on your behalf. Place your faith, your trust, your reliance upon Jesus Christ and his death for you. And by doing so, you receive and accept the first Christmas gift as your very own, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Emmanuel will really be with you and in you. Do it right now before we close in prayer. Just where you are. I can guarantee you, your background will make no difference to God. You will become a child of God through faith in his indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. You receive him today, and you will really have a blessed Christmas today. If you've made a decision for Christ, I'd be very happy to know that you did. Please let me or one of our pastors know. If you'd like to more to speak more to us about receiving Christ, please be sure to let us know. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for that wonderful miracle that you performed on that first Christmas when God became a man. And in spite of such unsavory ancestors, he became the sinless, spotless Son of God who became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And all of God's people said, Amen.